Perverted, brought to you by Sputnik Africa. We currently live in a world where we have so much information available to us that it feels as if we are the ones being consumed by it, not vice versa. And while this is a problem that I believe is one to be tackled individually by each media consumer, another problem is that of the objectivity of information itself. Yesterday, I interviewed a couple of students from across the African continent in Russia to understand what they think of the narrative Western media creates around Africa. So in light of global media and information literacy week, I want to look deeper into why Africa is painted as a place of corruption, poverty, crime and desolation. And what can each of us do to find the truth instead of being exposed to only one side of an issue? To help me do so, I'm joined by Professor Frederick Goluba Mutebi, an independent researcher, writer, columnist and analyst focusing on Africa's Great Lakes region. Prof, welcome. I'm happy to have you again on AfroVerdict. Just for an introduction, yesterday I did a Vox Pop on the streets of Moscow with uh, several African students and we spoke about uh, the media bias they've come across, um, Western media bias of the African continent. All of the students that I spoke to said that they noticed that uh, large medias like BBC, CNN and the like that are stationed in Africa per se uh, often give a slanted narrative of what's going on in the continent, including they end up painting a picture that the continent is all about poverty, all about corruption, violence, uh, natural disasters, uh, so on and so forth. So I would just like to know, as you are an independent researcher, right, in your line of work, have you come across this biased reporting or narratives in Western media coverage of the African continent? I don't know whether I should call it biased reporting, but I've I've come across a lot of inaccurate reporting or a lot of uh, slanted reporting. Uh, I've also come across uh, fairly significant amounts of reporting that is uninformed, uh, which would suggest to me that journalists don't go far enough in trying to establish what is what. It's it's fairly easy for journalists to recycle the same stories, repeating each other's assertions without really caring to look carefully and trying to come up with their own point of view. So what you hear about one country might be uh, recycled for so much for so long, well as the country that they are talking about has really moved on. But the situation on the ground has changed, but they keep repeating the same things. But there is also uh, what seems to me as um, a tendency to portray certain light, certain countries in a negative light consistently and not to do the same to other countries where the same violations or same things might be happening. So, yeah, there is a certain, there is no consistency, that's what I would say. Now, I don't know whether this is deliberate bias, whether this reflects the editorial policy of these media organizations, but, yeah, we, those of us who listen to Western media with fine filters, we do notice these things. So I, I take it that you use this information for your research then, correct? Or perhaps not this information per se, but use it as a lead to uh, perhaps investigate a certain topic. Am I on the right path? Usually, um, if the reporting is happening 
about a country in which I live or a country that I know very well. Um, it's just a matter of me realizing that actually these media houses are not as credible as they claim to be, or they are not as um, objective or unbiased as they claim to be. Um, I do not use it in my research, but there have been instances when I have got in touch with people working for media houses and questioning some of the assertions they are making about certain things. And um, in some cases, they have uh, come back to me and interviewed me about those things in order for me to point out what I think they are misreporting. Yeah, but uh, no, I don't, I don't use it in my research. It, it only reinforces my view that they are, they are not infallible. They are not as accurate or as objective as, as they, 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 make, they, make, they try to make us believe. Mm-hmm. Could you recall a specific example, perhaps? Yeah, I mean, there are many examples. For instance, uh, you will hear claims about, uh, let me give you a very specific example. The reporting on Rwanda a lot of what media reports as current news is actually very old stuff that has been overtaken by events, or it could be things that were once uh, claimed as facts, but then they've been proven to be wrong. But they, they keep recycling these things. They keep repeating them. Uh, for instance, there is this claim that somehow uh, Rwanda sends its uh, armed forces into Congo because Rwanda is uh, looking to loot uh, um, the resources from Congo or that Rwanda is seeking to destabilize Congo for whatever reason. Now, first of all, the thing is that if there has ever been an instance where the Rwandans might have been taking anything from Congo. That would be a very, very long time ago, maybe in the beginning. And I'm not sure that I would believe that this was something that is organized by Rwandan, the Rwandan state or the Rwandan government. I mean, this, it could be in videos smuggling minerals from Congo. They might be Rwandans or they might have Rwandan connection, connections. But there is a tendency to go very quickly into uh, trying to assert that, oh, this is organized by the government of Rwanda. Now, researchers who have gone into this issue and researched it and examined it in detail, they come up with no substantive evidence to indicate that this has been organized by the Rwandan state. These books have been published, but of course, it seems like journalists don't read them. Now, they will talk about how Rwanda is destabilizing Congo, how Rwanda is after Congo's natural resources, but they then do not talk enough about the threats to Rwanda's security that are coming from Congo. And those being the very reason why Rwanda is always on edge when there is uh, there is fighting in Congo or when uh, those uh, the, this famous rebel group, the FDLR, that seeks to destabilize Rwanda is organizing itself uh, on Congolese territory. But they just keep going on about minerals, minerals. Uh, there is this whole day, again, on Rwanda, they will talk a lot about human rights uh, abuses and how Rwandan are not free to talk and so on. Now, if you live in Rwanda, you don't recognize these claims. And I live there and I spend a lot of time there. I don't really, sometimes I wonder, what Rwanda are they talking about? Is it the Rwanda that I live in that I know well? If it is, then whatever they are claiming is not is not true. Or it might be only true to a certain extent, but then it is over-exaggerated. It's recycled all the time. 
I'll give you a third example. They, they claim that, you know, the government of Rwanda murders its opponents and the opponents of Rwanda have been hunted down in foreign countries and so on. Now, there are Rwandans who have died in foreign countries, and there might be some grounds for suspecting that this is the government of Rwanda that has done it. But how many are they? As far as I know, there are two. Two prominent Rwandans who have died in exile. One died, I think, in 1989 in Kenya. Another one died several years ago in South Africa. But the way they talk about it, oh, you know, Rwanda's opponents always turn up dead and so on. And if you say, look, give me some names of these people who are always dying. They have no names. They just have claims, but no names. So things of that kind always make me think, mm, these, these guys are not as seriously uh, as, ser- as serious or objective as they claim. Again, if you consider, say, uh, the issue of human rights violations, I don't think that there is more human rights violations in Rwanda than there is in its neighboring countries. I am Ugandan. I spend a lot of time in Uganda. I know that there is a lot of human rights violations in Uganda in the lead up to the 2021 elections and even after those elections. So many young people were abducted and tortured and disappeared. You very hardly hear about these things. But they are going to come up and make so much noise about human rights violations in Rwanda because one journalist died in a motorcycle accident at night on a certain date, and then they are calling for international inquiries and blah, blah. And you think, well, why is this one journalist more important than, say, the dozens of Ugandan young people who have disappeared, who have been abducted in broad daylight? So, yeah, I think that for that particular instance, I think there is a certain level of bias. Mm. And uh, do you think that this, um, well, you know, inaccurate uh, reporting or bias in Western media coverage of Africa, do you think it is perhaps influenced by geopolitical agendas and interests, or is it simply a lack of professionalism? What's your opinion on that? I don't know whether I would attribute it to lack of professionalism. I think, I don't know whether it's one Uh, spoke of lazy journalism, that would be lack of professionalism. I think you can find a journalist who is pretty much uh, professional, but they're just simply too lazy to Mm -hmm. do research and look into something in depth. So I think that it's partly lazy journalism, if one may put it that Mm -hmm. way. But I think that geopolitics does come in too. Have you seen any favorable reporting on Eritrea and Western media in the last 20 years? None. They are always going on about Isaiah Safwaki being a monster, how Eritrea is such a uh, North Korea of Africa and blah, blah, blah. Now, if you go to Eritrea, there are so many good things happening there. But if you're coming from this region, which I I was born in and live in, you go and you see all this infrastructure, all these uh, railways and motorways, the, the efforts they are making in the agricultural sector, there is a lot that is going on in Eritrea. That is being done by Eritreans, not even by foreign agencies or not even being fin- funded by aid. There's a lot that is going on on Eritrea that somebody could see as very positive. None of that is reported. They are going to keep reporting about Eritreans who are fleeing, who are dying in the Red Sea. They are talking about Eritreans who are running away from this monster for working. They will never tell you that part of the reason why Eritreans are fleeing is because Western governments have imposed sanctions on Eritrea for more than two decades. 
And these sanctions have devastated the economy of that country. And all these young people who are fleeing Eritrea, many of them are fleeing from lack of, of employment, from lack of economic opportunities. They're not fleeing from oppression. They are fleeing from the dire economic circumstances in their country. And when they leave their country and they go and uh, settle in Western countries, they keep sending money back to Eritrea. Some of them still go there on holiday. When I have been in Asmara, I have met Eritreans who are in Asmara who live in the UK, who live in the United States as refugees, quote unquote, but they go back home. So did they actually leave Eritrea because it was such a terrible place to live politically, or did they leave because Western sanctions have devastated their economy to such an extent that as a young person in Eritrea, you hardly have, a, have an opportunity for employment. Now, Western media will not tell you about all these things. They'll just keep going on about how terrible a place it is, how uh, oppressive the government is, and so on and so forth. I have hardly been to an African country where it is so safe. You can walk up, but uh, you can walk at night. And in fact, this Eritrea and Rwanda are very similar in that sense. You arrive in Eritrea, you don't see guns. There are no people carrying guns. It's all free in Asmara. You can walk around any time. You don't fear crime in Asmara. Nobody reports about this. They just report negative things all the time. Yeah, I get the same feeling. You know, when I read some of these Western media outlets, it it paints a, a very dark picture. Some have argued that Western media coverage of Africa is often driven by sensationalism and a desire for clickbait rather than a commitment to objective reporting, as we discussed now. Do you think that there are ways that this trend can be addressed or countered? I think that the only way it can be addressed or countered is by Africa-based media doing uh, stories or producing stories that reflect reality. But then we have a problem as far as that is concerned. If you read uh, newspapers in any African country, you will realize much to your consternation that a lot of the news that they have is sourced from AFP, is sourced from foreign news agencies is forced from Bloomberg and so on and so forth. Now, I think this may have something to do with lack of resources, but we do consume a great deal of news in Africa that is not actually being generated by media in Africa. It's being generated by foreign media who have their people based in these countries. Um, will Africa ever have something like Al Jazeera or CGTN or the New York Times or things of that kind? I don't think that's going to happen anytime soon. And as long as that doesn't happen, we are going to remain victims of this uh, misreporting and misrepresentation and lazy journalism and what you called uh, click clickbait journalism. So it's not it's not an easy problem to resolve, but yeah, at least if we are aware of it, then maybe we can look. When I was young, I used to listen to the BBC on a daily basis. If I didn't listen to the BBC, it would seem like something something is missing. Now, since I started actually seeing through some of the BBC's lazy journalism, these days I don't. I, I will listen to the BBC if I'm at home or if uh, if I'm in a conveniently place to listen to it. But if I don't, it doesn't really matter anymore because I know that it's not what I thought it was. If I li I, I don't watch CNN. I haven't watched CNN for so long because I find its reporting very sharp. So. Yeah, I mean, the more we become aware of it, 
the more we will read or listen to Western media with the fine filters that we should have and be able to see through some of their propaganda or some of their sloppy reporting. But I'm not sure that we have an instant solution for uh, reversing this. I, I really don't think so. So what do you use to to get uh, information and news? Uh, you said that you don't listen to, you haven't listened to CNN in a long time. What alternative uh, media sources are, your, are at your disposal? I still listen to the radio. I listen to Radio France International. I listen to the BBC. But I, I do not now take it as a must. But when I have time, I do listen to them. I do watch the BBC. Uh, in a single day, if I have time to watch news, I'll watch the BBC, Al Jazeera, CGTN, uh, uh, France, uh, 24, just to see which one is reporting what. Now, take the example of this war going on in the Middle East. If you watch Al Jazeera, you'll get a very different slant from what you get if you watch the BBC or yeah. uh, France, France, uh, 24. So if you scroll through all of them, you kind of feel, okay, now I have seen this. Uh, I, I told a friend of mine that if I really want to see the actual damage that Israel is causing in Gaza, I switch on Al Jazeera because they are showing everything. And if I want to hear in-depth analysis with a wide range of people, I will go to the BBC and hear what the analysts are saying. And then I'll change to CGTN and see what they're saying. So if I watch several in a day, I can say, oh, well, on balance, this is what it, what it is. I use social media. I follow the Israeli Defense Force. I follow um, their intelligence agencies. So I consume a wide range of media to see what is being reported. And then I try to make up my mind on balance after having seen all this. But I no longer now trust any Western media sources entirely uh, balanced or entirely objective. I think that they have agendas that they pursue. It's not by mistake. It's not that they want to inform us that they set up the BBC and all these uh, state-funded uh, news media in Western countries. They are projecting certain things. They are projecting their values. They are trying to shape our minds. And they don't shape our minds for our own good. They shape our minds for their own good. So it pays to be aware of all those things and not to consume their media naively, thinking that, you know, this is where everything objective lies. No, that's not true. All right. Going back to social media quick that you mentioned, do you think social media can play a role in challenging the dominant narrative about African countries in Western media? Absolutely. And I keep telling my friends that for me, I really... I really feel very thankful for whoever invented Twitter, which is now called X, because what that medium has afforded us as Africans is to be able to react almost instantly to anything that we might see as misreporting, as misrepresentation. There is a time when Africa Africans did not speak about themselves. Africa was defined and analyzed and uh, made known to the outside world by Western academics. Now, it's not that everything they say is accurate. They had shaped what people think of Africa. These days, we are able to talk back. We are able to say, oh, come on, this is not true. Oh, oh come on, this is wrong. This is misanalyzed. So social media has opened up a whole front for Africans to be able to, to try and push back. Uh, at these misrepresentations of the continent, as slanted reporting, as uh, in shallow research that is represented as uh, presented as representing truth. So yes, social media 
uh, has afforded us the opportunity to be able to talk about ourselves to the outside world. There's a time when we were simply being talked about and defined by outsiders and explained by outsiders. And I think that that has changed. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. I agree with you. But, um, you know, we're, we're currently living in a very rapidly developing technological age. And with the rise of artificial intelligence, I've now seen, um, you know, these videos where they, um, they impose someone else's face on a person and, you know, they, they do a lip sync so well that you can barely understand that it's, uh, that it's a deep fake. What would you advise in these instances? Because obviously now there's a risk that, you know, this AI will soon be used to target certain people, maybe once again, to change narratives. And uh, I'm not saying that some people do deliberately. It could happen by accident, even that, you know, a video will just emerge somewhere, an influential individual saying something when in reality, he never said that it's a, it's a deep fake. What would you advise people to do in order to find the, the truth, credible information? I think that what we need in Africa is people to become a little bit more media savvy or to become a little more skeptical about media. But I think that um, uh, that is what would enable somebody to listen to something or to see something and wonder, is this actually true? Did this happen? Now, there are things I encounter on this medium X, which I listen to or read, and then I check with my friends and say, look, have you heard of this? Or what do you think this is? Before I can even retweet it or before I believe it. So I think that in the short term, there is no solution except being a, a, a little bit more media survey and being a, bit, a little bit more aware of the dangers that uh, in artificial intelligence poses, of the dangers that social media pose. Because even on social media, we see fake news. Sometimes you tweet, you tweet something, you think it's true, and then you discover it's actually fake news. So if you do it once, twice, then you become a bit more careful about what you're seeing and whether you should distribute it or not. So I think that that's, that's the only viable solution I see in the short term. Yeah, definitely. But I also think that people should become a bit more uh, socially responsible. Because like you said, if it happens once, twice, some people will uh, will think that, yeah, I should be more careful, while others might not even pay attention. You know, they'll just say, oh, whatever, you know, stuff happens. So I think social responsibility should play a, a large role as well. But um, when you when you spoke about you asking your friends, I like that idea as well of confirming information with people that you know. I spoke to a, a good friend of mine. He's the host of Gabs FM in Botswana. And we were talking also about uh, on a media topic. And he said people should engage in live discussion as well. He says, for example, if, uh, if I hear something going on in Kenya, I'll call my friend in Kenya and ask her, hey, have you heard of this? What's going on? on the ground that right there. So I think that's also a good, a good thing people can try to do. I mean, of course, it depends if you have friends or, you know, acquaintance overseas. But once again, thanks to social media, that shouldn't be too hard to, uh, to attain. No, um, yeah, for people who have fairly large networks, that's very easy to do. I mean, I do this with my Tanzanian, Kenyan, South Sudanese, Rwandan and Congolese friends. If I see something that's really eye catching, but potentially very controversial. I check and say, look, have you heard of this? Or what do you think this is? And sometimes you find that it's actually fake news. 
or you find that it's being presented as news, but it's such an old story that it happened so many years ago, but somebody's trying to portray it as something that has just happened. So yeah, checking is wise. And I think that, again, developing checking as a habit really uh, is a function of a level of education or a level of awareness that you're dealing with a tool that is dangerous in the sense that it's, it doesn't always generate accurate news. So you need to be aware that not everything you see on social media is necessarily true or valid or accurate. And then you will learn to treat things with caution if you think, well, this is true and you know it's true you can retweet it but if you're not sure check i think that 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 comes from a certain level of uh, sensitization and awareness creation to the newcomers or random passers by welcome to afro verdict a podcast featuring the opinion of african minds on local and global events it is global media and information literacy week and i'm talking to professor frederick global mutebi about the problem of the West biased narrative of Africa. Is the government able to do anything about this issue? Let's find out. What do you think can the public and governments do to ensure a more objective coverage of events on the African continent? I don't think that we, the public or governments, can do that. I'm not, I, I don't see what they can do. I mean, our, our governments are not going to change the narratives that have been created by Western media about us. Uh, those will take a long time to change. Um, I referred to Rwanda before. I referred to Eritrea. There are narratives around each of these countries, and those narratives are very durable and very difficult to change. Um, and I think that sometimes you just see something and you say, oh, well, this can only be reversed with time or by time. Because they might say, oh, you know, for instance, uh, yesterday I tweeted something and said, oh, well, who supplies M23 with uh, with uh, powerful weapons? Now, for some months now, we've been told that Rwanda is the one that's supplying M23 with weapons. And even the UN was claiming that M23 are using weapons that are not ordinarily available to rebel groups. And so they were pointing this finger at Rwanda being the supplier. But I know from the war of 2012 and 2013 that M23 captured a lot of very uh, new and powerful weapons from the Congolese army. And they hid those. And when they started fighting again, they just dug them out from wherever they had hidden them. Now, yesterday we saw evidence of M23 having captured more very powerful weapons, uh, sniper rifles and drones and all kinds of motors and heavy weapons. And they were showing them. They were saying, look, this we took from FRDC. They were even showing the engraving on the weapons, proving that these weapons belong to the Congolese army. Now, for those of us who have been immersed in this issue of M23 for a long time, we know. Okay, there might be other suppliers of M23, but we know for a, for, for a fact that the FRDC has been a major supplier of weapons to M23. Not willing supplier, but M23 always routes them and they throw their weapons away. M23 kills so many of their soldiers and they capture all these weapons. Where do they think they put them? They don't sell them. They actually turn them on again. They turn them against the very government that they're fighting and the very government that bought them. The security government has bought so many weapons in recent in recent times. They have acquired drones. They have acquired all kinds of things. They have trained new army units. 
Unfortunately, these army units are, are showing is, uh, an incredible incapacity to fight M23. And M23 is just collecting arms and arms and arms from the very powerful weapons. Now, at least time has passed and we are beginning now to see that something that nobody actually, nobody had imagined is actually happening, that the DRC government itself is an, uh, an, an, what can I, an in, inadvertent supply of weapons to M23. So there are things that I don't think that we ordinary people, even governments, are in position to change these narratives. Those narratives will be shifted by time. Those narratives will be shifted by, well, some of us who are a little bit better informed, uh, challenging them on social media. But they are very powerful narratives. They are very durable. They've been there for a long time. They continue to be propagated. They are recycled endlessly. So they're very difficult to shift. Mm. And how do you think initiatives like the like this ongoing media and information literacy week can help promote greater awareness and understanding of uh, media, the media bias, misinformation, you know, lazy journalism, like you said, particularly in the context of Africa? I think they can achieve some success here and there, but these are one-off things that happen every now and then. It's not as if they are constantly happening. I mean. Uh, media week, how many media weeks do we have in a year? One. <laughs> and one, once it has passed, there will be more recycling of the same propaganda and same misinformation. So I don't think that it's it's a very effective tool. It can achieve something for those who are paying attention. Uh, some things can come out of it that open people's eyes. But I don't see them as the solution because they are only, they are like a drop of water in an ocean. So I don't think that they are an answer to anything. But yeah, one, one shouldn't dismiss them outright. They, they, they do achieve a few things here and there, but they're not the answer. Yeah, you got me thinking now about something when you say people that are more aware. This is now jumping back to a, a previous question that we spoke about, about what can people do to avoid being you know, misinformed. I think that uh, apart from lazy journalism, lazy reading could also, I think, be a problem because we see now, especially with, you know, ongoing trends like TikTok and YouTube shorts, Instagram reels, you know, these 30 second videos that really shorten the attention span of people. They sort of get used to paying attention for 30 seconds, 20, 30 seconds, and then moving on to something new, to a new stimulus. And I think it gets with time you know, as people are more and more exposed to this, it gets harder for them to focus on on a long video or a long radio program or a long book or article. You know what I mean? Do you agree with me there or do you think I'm perhaps misled in some way? No, well, I agree with you, um, especially for people who are busy. Mm. Uh, there, are many, there are many times when I go on to X and I see all these videos and long articles which I really can't read immediately. And I bookmark them saying, well, I'll go back to them at some point. Sometimes I forget. Other times I remember and I go through my bookmarks and find these things and then listen to them. There are times when I, I am aware of Twitter spaces that are going on at a time when I'm very busy doing something else. So I bookmark their recordings and then I can listen to them in the call, something like that. I mean, it takes some effort. Not everybody works like that. So there are people who will scroll through a long article just kind of 
uh, read a few lines and then jump it and got something else, watch a few seconds of a video and jump and got something else. That's very common because we are now, thanks to social media, we are bombarded by so much information that we are we are not capable of consuming it all at once or consuming it in, uh, carefully and uh, in, in kind of reflective fashion. So... Yeah, that's that, that that that's the danger with social media. There's too much to consume, too much to digest, and we really don't have that much time to do all that. Yeah, that's true. But I think that's some good advice for our listeners to use your free time. For example, while you're commuting to to work or from work or whatnot, uh, use that time productively. Find some uh, an analytical program or like like Professor said, uh, Twitter Spaces that you can listen to while you're not doing anything, while you're you know, waiting for something to happen. Because I do the same. Uh, on my way to and from work, I spend about an hour, more or less, to work and to home. So that's two hours a day of, of uh, productive reading or listening that I do. So, yeah, I'm excused from that. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. How do you think can Western journalists and media organizations that are based on the continent be held accountable for lazy journalism, biased reporting, whatever the case may be, and how can they be then encouraged to adopt a more balanced and nuanced perspective on Africa? You know, unfortunately, uh, journalists who work in Africa, who are based in Africa, uh, suffer from the same problem as diplomats. Uh, I... I know personally a lot of diplomats from Western countries, both in my native country, Uganda, and in my other country, Rwanda. And we do talk. We have coffee and we talk. And you'd be surprised that they express frustration uh, about the fact that whatever they report is not always taken seriously because there's already a narrative about the country they live in. So that narrative is still very influential. So if they report something that is not in line with the narrative, it's taken skeptically and it might actually be ignored and then something else will be uh, done that doesn't reflect what they have communicated to their countries. Now, media houses, and I'm sure even the media house you work for, have editorial lines, don't they? Now, or editorial policies. Um Journalists, uh, Western journalists or African journalists working for Western media houses do not always get their views reflected in the articles they write. Uh, you may write an article that is very appropriately nuanced or that departs from the main narrative about whatever it is you're writing about. You will submit this to your editor and the editor will chop it <laughs> in order to reflect that story that they want to communicate. Um, I'll give you, again, a very specific example. Years ago, I was talking to a senior British official at the time. Uh, he was a senior advisor to a British prime minister at the time. Now, we met in an African country, which uh, always receives such bad publicity in Western media. And I said, look, what, what, what is this thing of uh, newspapers in your country really perpetuating these stories that have been really um, overtaken by time, overtaken by events. And then he gave me a, sp a specific example that uh, made me really aware of the power of editorial policy. He said, look, uh, this particular newspaper, I'm not going to tell you which one, sure, but sure, a, no particular newspaper, a particular newspaper had written a story about that country. 
Now, this gentleman knew the country intimately. So he read the, the story and thought, no, but this is wrong. This is not true. So what he did is he wrote a comment on that story, which he wanted that newspaper to publish. Now, the editor of that newspaper was a personal friend of his, a longtime friend of his. So he writes his rejoinder, asks uh, that friend of his for coffee. And they met for coffee, and this guy suggested that this newspaper uh, publish this rejoinder. And that friend of his, who was the editor of the newspaper, read through it quickly, and he said, no, you know, we can't publish this because it goes against our editorial policy. Mm-hmm. So actually, what went against the editorial policy of that particular newspaper was the truth or the reality on the ground. But they had a policy which was very welcoming to distorted news and distorted stories about that particular country. So you can see, I mean, what what can the government of that country do to such a newspaper to stop publishing rubbish about them? Nothing, absolutely. And they have continued. I read that newspaper again about that country, and they keep producing the same biased, same inaccurate, same... Uh, distorted uh, stories about the country in question. Yeah, I guess that's true. But how do you think can then journalists in general, because I I know that there are independent, perhaps so-called independent journalists, but either way, um, how can they be encouraged to somehow provide a more balanced view on the country? Victor, I think that uh, the people who need to be influenced to be more balanced are media houses. Mm. It's not the journalists on the ground. Uh, a friend of mine is uh, a country manager for a particular African newspaper, an African regional newspaper. And there has have been instances where I read stories in that newspaper and think, but this is actually not entirely true, or this doesn't reflect what has happened, or this has been overtaken by events. Now, when I have spoken to that friend of mine and say, look, what, what is this story you guys have published? And, well, the person will say, look, it's not up to me. What I wrote wasn't exactly that, but that's what they came up with. It's not up to me to determine what comes out eventually in the newspaper. My job is to write what I write, and the editor will determine what comes out. So if you have media houses that have these very fixed editorial policies on particular countries, on, on, on particular phenomena, what can their employees on the ground do? I think that they can't do much. Uh, so how do you change uh, a media house's outlook on a particular thing? So for instance, uh, how do you get the New York Times, the Times of London, and other West, major Western newspapers to change their editorial line on Russia, for instance? How can the Russian government do it? I don't see how yeah. they can do it. Now, who can change their stance on Russia? I'm not sure. You might know this better than I do, but I don't know. I don't think the Russian government can, because they will treat whatever comes out of the Russian government, whatever comes out of official Russian media, whatever comes out of or comes from people they perceive as being pro-government or who they will paint as government spokespersons or government propagandists, they're not going to listen. Um, they will listen to independent journalists or independent analysts that have views that reflect their own or that reflect what they want to hear, not what might be actually happening on the ground. Yeah, I get what you say. So then basically what it boils down to is that people are responsible then f- for 
the media they consume. And the only way to get the truth is a multiplicity of views and investing time and effort into seeking the truth as it doesn't come that easily. No, it doesn't come easily. I think that for people such as uh, myself who earn a living from doing research, you have every incentive to check things before you take them seriously. Or you have the incentive to read widely in order for you to be able to say things that you will have uh, a lot of confidence in believing that they're true. But uh, your ordinary citizen who has a life to to lead, who has an, uh, a living to earn, what's the incentive for doing it? Unless they are very keen consumers of uh, international news or local news and also have the presence of mind to say, oh, look, I'm not going to believe everything I read or hear. Let me use multiple sources. That's not easy to do. A few of us will do it for all kinds of reasons. Others will do it also for all kinds of reasons. But I think that the vast majority of ordinary citizens, they have no reason for doing that. There's just too much to consume. So you, you, you consume the little you can and then you probably take what you've had as truth. Yeah, but I mean, for example, this narrative that is now painted of the African continent, it's ridiculous. I can't use another word except for ridiculous because I i grew up there and um, I spent most of my life there. I mean, sure, there's no place on planet Earth that's uh, that's perfect. We don't live in heaven. Life on Earth is is tough and uh, obviously all over the world you get places that you just simply don't want to be in because of uh, of the environment it's not all uh, roses and unicorns um but at the same time i would never ever ever believe this narrative that uh western media is spinning of like the like the um, uh, the students that i asked yesterday just like they said that uh, they paint a narrative of africa being full of uh, poor people full of corruption disease natural disasters it sounds like hell on on earth and that is not true well yes the you know certain events do take place the same events happen in Europe, the same events happen in Asia, in North, South America. I think the only place they don't take place is Antarctica where there's no people. I just, I'm just interested in what is then their incentive? Because coming back to your question, why would an ordinary person be interested in finding the truth? How does this narrative make, uh, make people from Africa feel that they live in a, I want to use a certain word, but they live in a hellhole? You know what I mean? How does it make how does it make you feel, for example? You know, you wake up uh, in the morning, make yourself some tea or coffee, and you, you open the news and you see that the place you're living in is scary. It's scary to, to live in. And while, you know, you look outside and you think to yourself, well, it's not doesn't look that bad, to be honest. How does it make you feel? As um, not, a, not as an independent researcher, not as a uh, political scientist, just as an ordinary human being uh, from Africa. How does it make you feel? Well, it doesn't make you feel good. You feel bad about it. Um, but also, I'm aware of only a very select group of people who think that intensely about things of this kind. Um, but I also know that there is a great deal of regurgitation of Western uh, narratives by even us uh, resident uh, intellectuals or middle class in Africa. 
Uh, a lot of what we think we know about ourselves or our countries, where do we get it from? We get it from foreign media. Now, when I've been to Eritrea and come out and written stories that contradict a great deal of conventional wisdom about that country, the first people to accuse me of being an apologist for a dictatorship are fellow Africans. <laughs> because for years they've been bombarded with a particular narrative that it has become embedded in their minds and they're very resistant to anyone saying, well, that's not all that there is to say about Eritrea. There is also this other side. And they become very, very resistant to anything that doesn't sound like what they think they know. Yesterday, I was talking to a friend of mine in Kampala. And uh, I I don't know. He was comparing President M7 to President Kagame, how both are this and this and the other. And they said, actually, no, I, I think that those two people are slightly different. And I was trying to explain to him what I, what the difference is, as far as I'm concerned. And then he jumped on to this other thing that, you know, but also Rwanda is a one-party state. And I said, it isn't. There are 11 political parties in Rwanda. And he said, are you serious? Is that true? But that's not what I've been hearing. So he was very resistant to being corrected because he has this long narrative of Rwanda being a one-party state, which it isn't. But this is how it is presented by a lot of ignorant people, including journalists and Western journalists. So that there are 11 political parties in that country. And the guy, he just didn't want to hear it. But I know it's a fact. So we have been... Uh, conditioned or our minds have been shaped in such a way that we believe that there is such a thing as independent sources of information and once we've heard those that's all there is to say about something um, so yeah it, it's difficult um, I talk to my friends sometimes uh, say if we are discussing democracy we Africans don't want to debate the issue of democracy because we think we know what democracy is because we have been told in school using uh, Western theories about what democracy is. So we don't want to discuss it. And if we discuss it, we don't want to veer from the formula that we've, we have been handed. And I always say, guys, no, democracy is not simply about voting on a regular basis. Because even countries where you have regular elections, elections are rigged, people's rights are violated. So those are not democracies. They may vote and well, vote for their leaders every now and then. So we have been put in a position where we are unwilling to break out of these uh, pigeonholes in which we have been placed. Even in African intellectuals are really totally unwilling to consider other sides of these very conventional lines of thinking. And w why do you think that is? I can share my personal opinion why, why I think people in general are reluctant to change their minds about things that they are uh, they have a concrete opinion in. I think it, they find security in it because we live in a world that's changing so rapidly. I don't think a lot of people can keep up on a mental level with what's going on. So in order just to have something stable, they'll believe basically anything as long as it satisfies that that feeling. And there's a very good uh, narrative in the Old Testament, I think, actually about it. A very interesting part about the when the Jews left Egypt and they they went out of tyranny into a desert, which is basically chaos. And then some of them wanted to go back. You know, they were longing back for the times of the Pharaoh. Um, I think it, it, perhaps it's a, a similar a similar narrative to to what we're experiencing now. But my question is, uh, to your opinion, why do you think would media houses 
want or could they be first of all be interested in retaining this uh, this mindset among the African population? Well, you, you say that people are content to retain what they think they know and challenging it or trying to scrutinize it is very destabilizing. I would say the same for Western media. They think they know what Africa is about. They think they know what Russia is about. They think they know what China is about. And anything that challenges what they think they know, they feel very insecure about. This is why we Africans who try to challenge these narratives on Twitter, we are called trolls. It's a word they use very often. So you get these Western academics trying to uh, propagate their conventional wisdoms about certain things in Africa or about certain countries. Now, if you challenge them, then they say, oh, there go the trolls. It's a reflection of their own insecurity, a reflection of their own anger at being challenged because they think what they know is what is true. But you, if you live in Africa, well, you have no, you're not entitled to an opinion. Otherwise, you're just a paid troll. So I think that just like ordinary human beings, even those uh, great institutions, they they feel insecure about being challenged or, or they feel insecure about what they think they know being challenged. Because it's destabilizing. How are they now going to start creating a whole new narrative? It's it's uncomfortable. It's difficult. Yeah, yeah, true. Prof, our time is uh, coming to an end, Prof. So thanks a lot for this uh, fruitful discussion. It was very interesting talking to you. Um, I personally loved it. Thanks for your professional opinion on it as well. And your personal take, telling us, you know, the stories about your friends and you engaging with them. All that very, very interesting. Thanks a lot, Prof. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Victor. Have a good day or evening or afternoon, whatever time it is where you are. Well, what we can all take away with us is that while we are exposed to information pushed by Western media that paints a rather awful picture of the continent, that's not all there is to it. One thing we can all do to get a more objective and realistic understanding of any topic is not to take what media houses give us for the sole truth, according to Professor Guluba Mutebi. Doing our own research is critical, and especially so since we are living in a time when the abundance of sources of information is a blessing and a curse. Fact check what you read and invest in finding the truth. If you missed something in this episode, go ahead and re-listen to this podcast on any platform among Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Deezer, Podcast Addict, AfriPods, Pocket Cast, and CastBox. For the latest highlights on significant events happening across the continent and globally, visit our Sputnik Africa Telegram channel, TikTok account, and other social media. If you don't like constantly tapping links and opening new tabs on your device, then simply download the Sputnik Africa application. It's user-friendly and will save you both time and effort. That's all for today's episode, everyone, and I look forward to seeing you all on Sunday. Have a great weekend. Afro Verdict, brought to you by Sputnik Africa.